0: Hi, I'm Brian Lay.
1: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fisher.
0: And this is the Diversify Our Narrative podcast.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Diversify Our Narrative podcast. Uh, This is the third episode of our educational narrative that we'll be following throughout the next year. And today we're going to be talking about equity and equality in education and the barriers that hold people back from having an equitable education. What is being done to address equity in education now and where we can go in the future to make education more equitable for students and to benefit society in general?
0: Yeah. Brian
1: is here with me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm so excited for this episode. I think um, discrepancies in education. Shows up in so many ways and it's so interesting to think about how other students experience school because we only ever experience things our way. And I I hear that your voice is recovering. Um, Do you want to talk just like two seconds about how you lost your voice?
1: Um, I have no idea how I lost my voice, but yeah, my voice is almost back to normal today. I am sorry for the change in tone, but... Sometimes I, I like, I like losing my voice because you don't lose it like very many times in your life. So when you do, you get to sound like a different person for like a few days, but I didn't realize that'd be an issue with like the podcast. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> the audio um, medium.
0: But, that we yeah, work in. yeah.
1: So this time it's not as like exciting or fun, but um, we'll be okay. I'm going to push through. <laughs> it's all good.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, aside from laryngitis, let's, uh, let's get started.
1: Okay, so oftentimes when we talk about education reform and in regards to people's access and experiences, not so much curriculum, which is what Dawn focuses on a lot, but in terms of experience, the terms educational equity and educational quality are used a lot. Usually these terms, equity and equality, are used interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really important to understand the differences between the two to like appropriately address discrimination and discrepancies among students because both equity and equality are you know good things and they're positive goals to aim for. Equality doesn't really address specific needs. and I think that's why we're shifting a lot to equity because it provides resources in very specific circumstances. The World Health Organization defines social equity as the absence of avoidable or remediable, differences among groups of people. So schools that prioritize equity instead of equality are more in tune with their students' needs, and they provide resources to overcome those specific challenges.
1: Right. So while equality is generic and group-focused, equity is adaptable and individual-focused. I don't think I understood the difference until very recently between these two terms. I was often, like, using them as interchangeable terms. I never understood, like, why there was like a difference in two letters between them. But now I do. And in thinking in terms of education, it makes sense why equity would be the best approach because every child's learning experience is different. Every child's lived experience is different. So it's obvious why it would be best to give students the experience that like caters to their needs and their life outside and inside of the classroom. We talked a lot about how our education system favors streamline approaches so it kind of goes against the equity model that we're talking about right now and I do understand how really treating every student individually is a lot more challenging than like broad strokes of I don't know like things we've talked about before common core or even like with textbooks it's a lot easier to do something that's kind of full sweep as opposed to addressing every student's needs individually but Just because it's easier doesn't mean it's beneficial.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just touching on that, I think a lot of schools focus on horizontal equity, which is treating people who are assumed equal in the same way. Um, But since everyone comes from a different background and people are multidimensional, educators should focus on what's called vertical equity. And that just assumes that students have different needs and they're able to provide individual resources.
1: One's right to an equitable education has long been a civil rights issue within the United States. Famously in 1954, that was nearly 70 years ago, the US Supreme Court declared education a right which must be available to all on equal terms. This case, which you may have heard of, hopefully you have, is called Brown versus Board of Education. And it forced federal, state, and local governments to open public schools to all children in the community. The decision marked a huge victory for the civil rights movement in desegregating schools and overruling the separate but equal precedent set in 1896 in Plessy versus Ferguson. But integrating schools did not guarantee an equitable education experience for all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And integrating school buildings is really only just the first step of this never-ending journey towards educational equity. There remains a lot of structural and social barriers to making public education available on equal terms. And a lot of this is due to socioeconomic and racial structural inequalities throughout just the fabric of the U.S. society.
1: Right, and also the United States is a much more diverse nation than it was around the time of the Brown decision. And childhood poverty has also increased. So after decades of integration in schools, we've begun to witness a resegregation by race and poverty.
0: Yeah, it's like it never went away. And unsurprisingly, money is the clearest indicator of educational equity between districts. So we'll talk more about how these dollars are distributed and how revenue gaps affect achievement gaps and all that in like really soon.
1: Yeah, let's get a little bit deeper into the barriers and inequities, like what they are, how they manifest, and what it means for one's education.
0: Okay, cool. So... Let's start with socioeconomic barriers, which I think really start with the family. Um, Low-income families owe debt. Um, They work low-paying jobs. They're more likely to not own a home or spend as much time with their children because they're working X amount of jobs. And this affects everything from transportation to schools to which schools the students are assigned to, and uh, I think I'll, you know. I think that one of the things we can start with is that low-income students may not spend as much time with their parents, especially single-parent households, and that and the fact that they can't afford childcare, they're less likely to be developed in non-cognitive skills uh, such as self-discipline, emotional awareness, and communication. And this significantly hurts the child's socialization, and it can marginalize them even further when teachers become frustrated.
1: Right, and in a study from the EPI, they found that low socioeconomic status had a correlation with things like students being more likely to have migrated to the United States or less likely to speak English at home. They're also less likely to live with two parents or participate in pre-K activities. And just like you said, because they're less able to spend as much time with their parents, they're more likely to not have and engage in early literacy practices at home.
0: Right. And on the flip side, if you're a high socioeconomic status student, you're more likely to have a larger number of children's books at home. You score higher on comprehension from books. You engage better with songs. You exhibit more teamwork in sports. And you even have the ability to talk about nature better. There's like so many benefits to, you know, just coming from a high socioeconomic status. And these students had just things I never would have expected, like even like involvement with chores and the ability to build things, it was so surprising.
1: Right, having access to resources that allow you to have those opportunities and experiences is really important. But also so much of this is about the parents. So let's talk a little bit more about parents and their effect on people's educational experience. So it's found that parents of a higher socioeconomic status expect more from their children's education, with more than 90% of parents expecting a degree beyond a high school diploma. In recent years, these parents are increasingly expecting their children to obtain an advanced degree like master's, PhD, or MD.
0: Which is crazy. And I think that determines so much of your child's uh, success. Like if you're expecting greatness, you're probably gonna move to a good school district or enroll your child in private school and you'll like fund more trips, buy them resources, get them tutoring, they help with homework, it goes everywhere. Speaking of school districts, do you want to talk a bit on on school districts?
1: Yeah, for sure. Since schools are financed mainly by real estate taxes, it becomes really clear how low-income and high-income schools get sectioned off from each other. Schools in high-income neighborhoods get more resource funding, PTA involvement, and newer facilities they'll probably have good desks electronic whiteboards and renovated playgrounds we'll talk more about that day to day later i don't think i ever really thought about like playgrounds but like that's very important to a young kid and it kind of makes me sad to think that there's like discrepancies in playgrounds yeah
0: actually i in elementary school i had two playgrounds one was like city funded and the one was like school funded and the city funded one was like awful up until like uh, like a few years ago so sketchy things were falling apart um, and my school and wasn't much better but they both got renovated after i left elementary school which i was very jealous of um, so let's move on to the other set of barriers that we were researching about which is racial barriers and i think racial barriers are obviously related to socioeconomic status but there are very specific barriers that are related to race regardless of if you're high-income or low-income. Modern-day segregation, for example, is a result of socioeconomic barriers, but are also very racist. However, white educators that prop up racist ideas is just a race-based barrier. Um, Another example is just across the nation, teachers are predominantly white, and teachers of color make up only a fraction of the workforce. And yet white educators score higher on tests of implicit bias and anti-black bias than educators of color.
1: Yeah, I think this is incredibly important to highlight because a predominantly white teaching force can be harmful to what children consider to be the norm or look up to as the norm. It's just not representative of the students because children of color account for more than 50% of all U.S. public school students. Despite this, the diverse, despite that, Statistic, and the diverse student population, teachers of color only compromise 17% of all teachers.
0: Which is crazy because it's like these students that are considered minorities aren't even in the minority anymore. And I think what's interesting is that the 17% of teachers of color that are there, they're two to three more times more likely to be concentrated in high poverty areas, high minority urban public schools, and it they have really challenging working con- conditions like low pay low resources um, under training lack of school materials and they're just being kind of shoved into the deep end and it's likely the reason why there are so there are such high turnover rates compared to white teachers
1: right and the statistics about like how there's a predominantly white, teaching force and yet students of color make up 50 percent of the student population reminds me a lot of just about like our political spectrum at large and how politicians are predominantly white yet our population is so diverse and it really just speaks to like positions of power in this country and maybe it's like an intense thing to say that teachers are a position of power but as a young kid like it is your most intimate relationship with someone that has power and you're uh, learning from them so it just reminds me a lot of politics at large. Um, but moving on, teachers of color are also frequently expected to discipline students that white teachers have a hard time teaching. It's really unfair and exposes a need for more intentional professional develop for, development for both BIPOC and white teachers. Otherwise, these unfair expectations will continue to frustrate teachers of color and continue to result in high levels of attrition.
0: Yeah. it's the idea of discipline is rooted in whiteness anyway, and like what we deem as um, a good student or what's deemed professional is very easy for a white student compared to like someone that doesn't identify with that that white lifestyle. Um, so let's talk a bit about how this impacts students, and we can talk with te- we can start with test scores. So test score performance isn't great. Um, And it's not like the perfect way to measure success, but it does measure something. And test score disparity is very clearly related to resource allocation and socioeconomic status, but it's also related to race. In areas where white educators scored higher on bias, meaning that they're more biased, black students did worse on tests compared to their white counterparts. And educators that scored lower on bias that were less biased or less anti-black, those black students were more on par with their white counterparts.
1: Yeah, and as much as we want to say that test scores, like, I mean, I, I agree that they're fundamentally problematic, but really... The way things kind of move around in education is a lot of times based on test scores, so they're very important in terms of what educators or administrators are looking for, what school districts are looking for. So we can critique them a lot, but at the end of the day, they do mean a lot in terms of how things are going to change or shape or move because it's kind of how we're basing things at this given moment but that's really interesting and it's just a measurable effect of the bias that we've been talking about throughout this segment and also it's just like incredibly unfortunate but I think like something that you were talking about in terms of discipline and whiteness that you just mentioned but black students are more likely to be perceived as aggressive even when they're simply feeling anxious in fact neurodivergent black students such as those with ADHD are less likely to be diagnosed and thus misunderstood, especially by white educators. This leads to an increased magnitude and frequency of punishment compared to white students exhibiting the same behavior.
0: Yeah, discipline is a huge problem. And students of color, especially at the high school level, are more likely to be harassed by on-campus police. And that just leads to students not wanting to be at school. And so chronic absenteeism is a huge problem for uh, students of color and it's not their fault it's just the police are giving you a hard time all the time
1: right and i think like if there's discipline issues going on between a teacher and a student in the classroom then that could also result to something else happening on campus and if police are on campus that's a really threatening thought for for anyone and uh, yeah i think i i've never really you know connected the dots between that and absenteeism but it makes a lot of sense
0: yeah uh, there's even like on my campus at emory there has been sort of a sort of a move to either like abolish the police or like give them very minimal roles because it's scary to have a private police force that has in the past been very um, have racially profiled a lot of students Um, do you have on-campus police at your school
1: i don't I mean, I, we have security at my college, but I think the NYPD presence is so prevalent around the city yeah. <laughs> that it's just like, it's intense. It's intense. And I, I I, was thinking about this before we started talking, like, because I didn't grow up in New York City, but because now thinking about schools and thinking about police, I do wonder what schools, public schools, I'm talking about high schools and middle schools elementary schools even like what the police presence is on those campuses and how it differs based on different communities i'd be really interested in looking into that because yeah then my pd in, i mean excessive is like um an understatement so yeah i'm just really i'm i'm interested to know what that looks like
0: yeah i know at some elementary schools and some middle schools in my district had police and some didn't um i went to my middle school i think had a police officer um but i know some didn't especially in the richer areas but also also like speaking more broadly i found like history classes were really distasteful and i found it so hard to get on board with history classes i did not take history like three of my four years of high school just because like i hated it and i took it at the community college instead because history is so eurocentric and um, and I, I just and, and also like music education is is rooted in like white supremacy and classical music is very Eurocentric and and just like the curriculum itself is like a huge <laughs> uh, issue for students of color.
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I, I think like when we talk about educational equity, even though at the beginning I was saying like we're talking about access and resources and experiences as opposed to curriculum, curriculum is right in there with everything because it shapes your, it shapes your experience. It shapes your comfortability level. It shapes how you are learning and how you feel comfortable and seen. So it definitely is right in there with everything else about the equity that we're talking about. And just to finish out with the barriers, because there's a lot, there's a lot more. And like this doesn't, this is not a comprehensive list that I'm about to talk about. But the teachers and principals report um, some other barriers include family crisis, mental health issues, lack of health care, coming to school hungry, homelessness, or living in a temporary shelter, still learning English, and another one is still learning the English language. Many of these can be directly or indirectly tied to race in class, but they also may exist totally separately. Um, And then additional barriers, like we were just mentioning in terms of curriculum, but resources available so computers books teachers counselors or supplies and the political or instructional climate at a school would definitely be a barrier to your educational experience if you feel less comfortable than the person sitting next to you based on your intersectionality versus your teacher's intersectionality or just the way that race is talked about at your school
0: yeah that's actually a good segue to talk about like how this looks on a day-to-day basis. And so let's, I'm going to zoom out and sort of talk more more broadly about learning outcomes. So children in the highest socioeconomic group score significantly higher in reading and math than children in the lower group. They also score higher in non-cognitive skills like teamwork and emotional regulation, like we talked about, and that prevails through high school.
1: Right, and it doesn't look like the achievement gap is going to go away anytime soon. The difference in standardized math and reading test scores is 40% greater than the difference in 1990. The gap in student achievement is also larger between different incomes and between races.
0: Yeah, that, that was so interesting to read about. Like The fact that the achievement gap is so much greater and it's continuing to get greater rather than any amount of closing. Um And another huge learning outcome is graduation. And that's something easy to measure. Graduation rates are much lower in low-income districts because of the chronic absenteeism we talked about. And uh, it's, you know, graduation is less about learning ability or difficulty. And it's more about retention and outside factors and just like, can you or can you not show up to school? And that's not really related to how how well teachers do, but like just like their life.
1: Okay and related to graduation is college enrollment so the average college enrollment rate for students right after high school was about 41 percent in 2018. white students enrolled at a rate of 42 percent black students at 37 percent and latinx students at 36 percent asian students are the highest at 59 percent which is actually down from 64 percent in 2010. indigenous students are at 24 percent which is higher than 16 percent in 2000 but much lower than 41 percent in 2010 i do wonder like what the spike in numbers are about if anything i'm i'm curious
0: yeah maybe 2010 was like a just a great time to learn i don't know Mm -hmm. Um,
1: maybe (laughs) i don't remember it being that great of a time
0: an interesting disparity uh is Just like the overall lower graduation rate of men, um, which is not related to race or status, but sometimes as much as 10% lower for men. And uh, that also correlates to the overall lower college enrollment rate for men. And I mean, I would bet money that this is due to the availability of trade school. Um, So yeah, let's, let's talk a bit about that.
1: Yeah, so vocational education is often overlooked, underrated, or under-respected as a pillar of post-secondary education. There's three different types of students that are more likely to participate in vocational education. Um, The first being those with low academic achievement, those who don't aspire to receive a college education, Are those from low socioeconomic backgrounds?
0: Right. And what's even more interesting is students with disabilities uh, have a higher participation rate. And the report that sort of like I took this from was less talking. It didn't talk as much about race and culture as much as I would have liked, but it did talk a lot about socioeconomic status. And this makes sense because trade school is a lot more affordable and you can make a lot of money from going to trade school
1: trade school isn't something that was like never advocated for like in my high school like I I don't opportunities for that were not talked about and I really think that that's just like such a shortcoming and for people that like we said like don't necessarily want to go to college that's perfectly fine if they want to go to trade school like having that opportunity available I mean I'm sure it's as easy as a google search but really having it like advocated for by your counselors or teachers would I think just like inspire a lot of confidence in students that that would really benefit
0: yeah and it's I mean it is easy to make six figures as a as someone that works in plumbing or or an electrician and you're right like college isn't for everyone um especially for students that didn't identify with the education system growing up, they're certainly not going to want to go to college. And I feel like the current educational climate is like pushing everyone to go to college, um, which is a which is a huge contributor to the student loan crisis, which we will not talk about here. But student <laughs> loans are very bad.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. That could definitely be like a whole episode or like a whole series. But. <laughs> I yeah I mean I mean student loans is like one of the first things that come to mind but college is like it's like two to four to however many years of your life if you're not passionate about you know getting a degree like it's really it's unfortunate that like that is like you know this holy grail standard in our society not to mention how expensive it is and all the other things but I mean with that said of course like I'm a college student I love college but I, I do think that trade school is something like an alternative or just other alternative routes after high school. Um, having those be part of the conversation would be really beneficial. But let's zoom in a bit more and talk about the learning experience and like the differences that really come down to resource allocation and how big of a budget the school district has. For example, low-income schools also have less access to technology, so students have to share resources. Looking at an affluent suburb like Manchester, Connecticut, students have individual Chromebooks and digital whiteboards. In New Britain, a different suburb near Manchester, not Massachusetts, sorry, Manchester, students didn't have guidance, counselors, or teachers, helpers, let alone individual Chromebooks.
0: Yeah, and students are also just more likely to have frequent substitute teachers compared to their higher income counterparts. And it can seem really trivial. Um, But it really really affects the student's connection to the subject and, more importantly, to their teacher if they're always seeing their substitutes instead.
1: Right. Actually, speaking of teachers, students from low-income neighborhoods are much more likely to have a newer teacher. We found that 11-year-olds from low-income schools are about 30% more likely to have a novice teacher. And new teachers are not necessarily bad. They can oftentimes be very passionate and enthusiastic, but this like astonishing statistic kind of alludes to this high turnover rate at schools and just a less overall experienced faculty at that school.
0: Yeah. It's like, if, if you have that many more new teachers, you're so much less likely to have someone that you can ask advice from. And that's super important. Um, in the same study, the students that experience more novice teachers are also more likely to be held back a grade. Um, and, and yeah, I also think it's really important to talk about after-school programs because there's such an overlooked aspect of education since it's not in the classroom, but they're essential to the community. Um, High-quality high after-school programs improve students' educational outcomes, their attendance to school, social and emotional learning and their physical activity needs.
1: Yeah, they're great. I mean, consistent participation also shows a lower dropout rate and helps the achievement gap close for low-income students. They also help older students reduce behavior that may be personally harmful. Um, And they're also able to gain college and career skills that they can't typically get in a classroom or throughout the school day
0: yeah and that's i mean after learning that i will always and definitely be thinking about after school programs for my kids in the future and i didn't go to an after school program myself but did you
1: um i didn't go to one like consistently i think i went to some like here and there but i don't know like i i also think of like extra like after school programs like a little bit like extracurriculars in a way i know that like we're talking about two different things but also the ability to participate in extracurriculars or like for example like if we just use sports having you know certain resources for playing whichever sport you would like is an opportunity that isn't at every school so like being involved in something after school um I mean and I guess like learning a skill through sport like obviously you're learning like the sport but you're also learning teamwork or how to communicate with other people around you and I don't know about after school programs, but definitely extracurriculars or something that was a big part of my life.
0: Yeah. Actually, now that you bring it up, I definitely remember going to in elementary school. I went to, um, a robotics club, which was once or twice uh, a month. And it was just like kids coming together to build robots on a Wednesday afternoon.
1: That is so fun. But
0: I didn't go to like a formal after school program. Um, Yeah. So how do disparities affect after school programs? Well, like cost is a huge factor. About 60 percent of parents cite cost as the main reason they didn't enroll their child in a program. And since federal funding has cut more than 10 million dollars from the budget, um, the burden of hosting an after school program falls on the state, which they're not as helpful either. So really communities and families in uh, by the schools.
1: Yeah, and the cost has been further compounded by COVID. While at least 17 states have allocated COVID relief funds to after school programs so far, a recent survey has cited that 61% of after school programs are highly concerned with permanent closure. Parents just don't want their kids to be in school longer than they have to be because of the pandemic, which honestly makes sense. Like, I don't really know how an after school program functions online and maybe this wasn't talking about online maybe this was more in person but yeah i mean covid i feel like through that whole system for a loop and something like i wouldn't think about necessarily because i don't have kids i'm not a young kid but <laughs> i mean after programs after school programs like what happens to them during covid and also what happens to the people who are responsible for running them and like that's their job where does that go
0: yeah And in the same vein as after school programs, I think is the school counselor. I think counselors are essential for student mental health as well. They also are a support system outside of the classroom. But according to the ASCA, the national average is one counselor for every 455 public students, um, K through 12. So let's say that again, because I think that's like huge. (laughs) One to 455. That's crazy. And that's actually a better number than in past years. Um, But for context, the recommended ratio is 250 students per one school counselor. So some schools range, like Vermont's doing better than the recommendation. They're 202 to one in the average. And in Arizona, it's the worst at 905 students for every one school counselor, which is crazy. Like, I can't imagine trying to help a thousand students.
1: That is insane. I feel like even 250 students, like the recommended ratio, that still seems like a ton yeah. of students. Um, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I... I I guess like when it gets to 905, like it just, it seems to me that the counselor becomes like a computer algorithm. Like yeah. the counselor is just trying to figure out people's schedules via the computer, like let alone being worried about people's emotional and social health and also having to respond to parents' concerns. It—that That is insane. But I would also argue that 250 is insane as well.
0: <laughs> I would agree.
1: Yeah. But since low-income areas are more likely to have overcrowded schools and private schools are intentionally smaller in class size, the issue of overworked counselors, college readiness, and lower mental well-being of a school are all socioeconomic issues of resource allocation. And this is a great transition to teachers and class sizes. All else equals students perform better if they're educated in smaller schools, have a smaller class sizes, receive a challenging curriculum, and have more highly qualified teachers. Minority students are much less likely than white children to have any of these resources. As far as class sizes go, Princeton University study reveals that class size reduction is one of the very few educational interventions that have been proven to narrow the achievement gap, which we've been talking about kind of all episode. While um, minority students are most likely to benefit from smaller class sizes, um, the research also shows that they're the least likely to be in these classes.
0: Right, and so many of these issues are interconnected, both in what causes them and in the effects they have. So, talking about teachers and discrepancies in teachers, the National Commission on Teaching and America's Future found that New teachers hired without meeting certification standards, which is about 25% of all new teachers, are usually assigned to teach the most under-resourced students in low-income areas. And while the most highly educated new teachers are more likely to be hired largely by wealthier schools.
1: And to really drive home what a disadvantage that puts these communities and students is, in an analysis of 900 Texas school districts, Harvard Economic economist Ronald Ferguson found that teachers expertise was the single most important determinant of a student's achievement and accounted for roughly 40 percent of the measured variance in students reading and math achievement gains in grades grades one through 12 which like makes me think about all the teachers who have like inspired me to be a better student which is the case whenever I'm feeling really you know, inspired by education. It has to do with the teacher. It has to yeah. do if the teacher can make the content interesting to me. Do you have any teachers that come to mind, Brian, when I'm talking about this?
0: I have. Uh, I do. They're like arts teachers. So they're always passionate because why are you teaching the arts if you're not passionate? But my favorite non-arts teacher would be um, Mr. G, Mr. Gilliland. He teaches like Uh, calculus bc and he he like did his master's in math so he obviously fit that expertise and proficiency but he was just so cool like he did a flipped classroom and uh, so we would do like 10 or 20 minute videos every day uh, at home but then in the classroom it was like it was like free reign like do do you want to just like play games and and not do your work okay cool that's on you do you want to practice that's on you do you wanna um i don't know like i i like sometimes practice my harmonica outside like i like it was like a good time
1: (laughs) that sounds fun that sounds really fun what do you mean by flip classroom i'm just interested like he sent videos at home
0: yeah so in flip classrooms you learn the material at home and you practice during the class time it's like doing homework individually during class and then the lesson plan is outside of class and that just allows you to practice and like if you need help you can call the teacher right away Um, and I I prefer the flip classroom setting because I learn better individually anyway like I don't I don't like the pace of classroom lectures but I do like the one-on-one interactions that come with flip classrooms
1: yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I would understand how, like, people would argue against the fact that, like, students aren't going to do the work at home. They're not going to watch the lesson plan at home or pick up on things. But I think in terms of talking about addressing individual students, like doing homework in class or doing that work in class and having a teacher be able to be with you through that experience could be really beneficial. Yeah. Um, But as mentioned before, like in terms of quality of curriculum, that also contributes to students' performance in and outside of the classroom. This is a little bit separate from teacher expertise, yet the two are definitely interrelated because challenging curriculum requires a more qualified teacher.
0: Yeah, and typically for schools that that lack resources, curriculum offerings and materials are often lower in quality. And teachers are a lot less uh, qualified in terms of levels of education, certification, training in those fields. So in the 1980s, a Harvard professor, Gary Orfield's research, he basically confirmed that most minority students are segregated in lower track classes with larger class sizes, less qualified teachers and lower quality curriculum.
1: Right. And typically the most qualified teachers teach the most demanding courses to the most advantaged students, while lower track students are assigned to less able teachers and receive lower quality teaching and less demanding material. I mean, all of that makes sense. And this is also related to race. Even when grades and test scores are comparable, Black students are more likely to be assigned to lower track non-academic classes.
0: Yeah. um, A prominent example of discrepancies in curriculum, offerings and access uh, is with AP courses. And access to AP courses matter for a lot of things. Um, One of them just being that the curriculum is widely viewed as rigorous, which allows students to take on additional weights for their GPA. It also helps uh, with applications and college education. And it's just a a key gateway to upward mobility like, I, I felt like there was a huge difference between students that took um, intro to bio at, at my college, where if you took AP bio, it was like a breeze. Whereas if you didn't take AP bio, it was like probably your hardest course ever.
1: Yeah, it's uh, like interesting on a smaller scale, like, when, like that kind of upward mobility, just even within schools. I guess when I, I was thinking about upward mobility, I was kind of tying it to the fact that if you can get college courses out of the way in high school, You know, you first of all, colleges love to see AP courses. Second of all, like going to college, being able to gain more credits there and then your degree. And yeah, I mean, it's all tied together, but on a small scale, just being like one step ahead of another person in a Mm -hmm. class like that, like that is definitely an advantage of AP courses. And along with that, passing AP test can, like I said, earn students college credit, which can make college a lot more affordable. And allow you to take more interesting courses in college if you would like to, if you can get some gen eds out of the way or just having more credits in your, you know, weighted for your college GPA.
0: Yeah. And uh, even though it's deeply important and equitable access to AP courses uh, is important, it confronts a lot of barriers, including but not limited to educator bias and inexperience, student stereotypes, prerequisite requirements, potential family costs. If a student wants to take the exam, those are not cheap. Like I forget how much they cost, but I think it was like 70 or $90 or something. Like they add up. Um, And just like district costs of offering more AP courses and school level racial and economic segregation.
1: And aside from all like the practical justifications for taking AP classes, like we had just mentioned, um, just the notion of not having the opportunity to diversify and challenge yourself within your educational experience based on your socioeconomic standing or race is incredibly unfair. With all like the problems that, you know, there, there are problems with AP courses. Like we've been talking about Eurocentric curriculum and the test costing money. But by allowing individuals or entire schools unequal access to those classes or courses... It's like saying who's like worthy of learning something or challenging themselves and who is not. And those inequalities like definitely infiltrate the higher education system and then society at large.
0: Yeah, I, it's so interesting what you said about people uh, basically being classified as worthy or unworthy. And I think that's a huge part of why people are very quick to say um, they didn't learn anything in school. And it's just because they weren't challenged um, or that they're taught things like, like they're not worthy of being taught well, you know?
1: Right. Um, I was surprised to find out that there was a case that addressed these exact inequalities in 1999. The suit was filed by the ACLU of Southern California on behalf of four students at Inglewood High. The class action lawsuit notes that only three AP courses are offered at Inglewood High School in Los Angeles County, Um, a school that is 97% Black and Latinx. In contrast, a nearby Beverly Hills High School offers 14 AP courses are offered, and only 8.8% of the students were Black or Latinx.
0: Right, and it was argued that this would not only affect college entrance, but it also caters towards individuals' points of interest, uh, their desire for more rigorous curriculum, Ah, uh, but the Department of Education found that the quality of high school curriculum is far is a far better predictor of who will get a bachelor's degree than GPA or test scores because degrees correlate with job prospects. So this is how we see a systemic
1: issue right. and that's like exactly what we were just talking about. Um, but this it's like in a case. What did you know about this case, Brian? No, because I, didn't. I had never heard of it. Yeah, this is yeah. so interesting. yeah. Um, I I wish this case was talked about more. I wish more people knew about it, um, especially if you're taking an AP class. Just realizing that that definitely is that is a privilege, especially like also talking about how the tests cost money. Um, yeah, like you said, it definitely does add up, and there's a lot of pressure on students to perform well in those tests, not only to get the you know GPA boost or the college credit, but You know because their parents are spending a lot of money or they're spending a lot of their own money
0: yeah and even let's take an example of like let's say a student is so highly driven so motivated they want to do well in school despite everything and they can't succeed well just because their school doesn't offer the right courses Um, and i think that was the heart of the case one thing that like we haven't talked about, but I think is super important is COVID and just how that affected education. Um, a huge inequality is just the transition to online learning, um, not only with students that have access to technology versus students that don't have access to technology, but also the the access of effective test preparation, um, like studying for SATs and AP exams, um, all of this and, and also just like how students can how students that might need more individual attention versus those who don't all of these factors are affected hugely by just technology like do you have good internet do you have a good computer are you able to be in the same room are, are you able to be in your own room versus do you have to share a room with someone else and are they talking the whole time do you have headphones this is all like just a huge huge thing that I can't fathom going through um, if I was in public education right now.
1: Yeah. And all of these things that we talk about in terms of like opportunity gaps and the digital divide existed far before COVID. I mean, everyone keeps using the word like COVID exasperated everything. But I mean, I guess that that's that, that is true. But it, it really more than anything just brought all of this to light. And I think like the college board, because of the way that AP tests were modified and the education system in general has to do some like serious reckoning about around equity this past year. So like so many other things that COVID has made clear within our society, the discrepancies in educational experiences is an unavoidable truth that we have to face. So as unfortunate as it has been for everyone's education to be modified so drastically, it would be an even bigger shame not to view this as like a pivoting point for positive change in the future.
0: Yeah, so where do we go from here? And let's let's just focus on what we can do and what's being done. I think some current solutions that are in place to address educational equity include hiring DEI directors for schools or districts. Um, the elimination of penalties for late work is a huge one also removing prerequisites for honors and AP courses, which is a mixed bag. Um, And then I think a move towards standards-based grading and increased staff training is huge to uh, more equitable educational practices.
1: Yeah, other practices that are in place and are pretty common right now is reviewing hiring practices, disaggregating performance data, focusing on individual students, changing curriculum, and involving students in the conversation. Um, There's also approaches that teachers may take on a much smaller scale to adjust students' needs in the classroom that aren't listed here. Um, Some of these initiatives are certainly for the better. They may all be for the better, actually. I mean, Dawn obviously really works towards the last two solutions that I mentioned, which is changing curriculum and involving students in the conversation. Um, But I'm interested about what you were saying about standard-based grading. I think you know more about that than I do. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, standards-based grading is super interesting. I'd I'd like to think I know enough about it to talk about, but I don't know, like I Mm. haven't taught it, so I don't know the ins and outs of it. Um, But it's basically a shift in pedagogy or how we teach where instead of thinking about things as like a one-time test, um, a one-time homework assignment, a one-time project. It's things that you can practice over a long period of time. And then the test, uh, quote-unquote, at the end, measures your mastery rather than like how well you can do it on this time-pressure-sensitive thing. Um, You can retake that test later. As long as you prove that you're able to meet the standards, you can still get an A regardless of how many times you need to retake it because that's what matters, right? Is that you get the answer eventually because that's how the real world works. Another kind of connection to that is the elimination of uh, late penalties because that's kind of, I mean, yes, there are lots of deadlines in the real world, but you can also always get extensions. And I think just that Sort of like leniency and that sort of compassion in teaching is a huge shift that can lead to a more equitable way of grading things.
1: Right. And like the elimination of late penalties also, I think, maybe ties into what we're talking about just about like things that are going on outside of home or like things that are going on within the home or just in life in general. Like in the real world, that happens too. Like outside of school, that happens too once you've graduated and you do need to ask for extensions. And I think like maybe teaching students like the responsibility of like something is going on, like may I have an extension or like this is what's happening, communicating with a teacher as opposed to fearing a late penalty. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, I think it ties into the discrepancies that we were talking about earlier in terms of like absenteeism or just needing to have more time and resources to f- complete your work.
0: And just like if you're if you don't get something, the ability to redo it until you get it is a lot more useful than, oh, I don't get it. So I'm just going to fail this section yeah. of the curriculum and move on. Because yeah. that's what I did in like all of calculus was if I didn't get a module, I, would, I wouldn't I would even care because I'd be like, okay, whatever, I'll get the next one rather than actually trying to figure things out and like get it.
1: True. No, that's, that's really true. That turns like a lot of educate like my experience at least on its head in terms of testing, it was like get the right answer or like you don't know versus yeah. like try until you get the right answer. Um I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think like maybe some teachers of mine incorporated that sometimes, but it wasn't ever termed that and that wasn't like push. That wasn't the approach that was pushed. But we've also talked about the necessity to hire a more diverse teaching force or to have a more diverse teaching force and the effects that not having one has on equity. So one of the key ways to do this is to change hiring practices and eliminate biases that exist within the hiring process, which is one of the approaches that is being like advocated for to improve educational equity that we have today.
0: Yeah, and this idea of like who is fit, quote unquote, to be uh, a teacher really has to be removed from any educa- any conversation about hiring, uh, especially hiring teachers of color, because these conversations are often racist in nature and they perpetuate a lot of inequities at the teaching level, which then, of course, affects the students.
1: Right. Um, Dr. Howard E. Fields III, the author of How to Achieve Educational Equity and the co-founder of Black Males in Education St. Louis and EDU Openings, defines educational equity as creating or eliminating policies, systems, and practices in schools that impact experiences, outcomes, and access to resources for students from previously excluded groups. Therefore, he's really saying that educational equity is action. It can't be, you know, all talk, no, like, you know, like no serious action. And also, as much as we've been talking about students' individual experiences and how important that is, there's also like broad sweeping systems in place right now that need to be checked so that individuals can have ex- It's not just about, you know, it's a systems approach too. It's not just about, you know, individuals because systems obviously do affect individuals as well.
0: Yeah, I think this is where we get into like the critiques of how some of these uh, practices we mentioned earlier are being uh, like actually used. And Dr. Fields just makes the point that Too often, uh, DEI specialists are set up to fail because they ultimately report to someone who has not done their own work in inclusion, diversity, equity, anti bias, anti racism work, Um, or that the organizational organization protects. White supremacy by denying any attempt to address long lasting systemic issues relating to inequities. So like while it's, of course, important to focus on the needs of individual students uh, in achieving educational equity, it's also necessary to observe what policies or barriers exist that prohibit equity and eliminate them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And something that can't be overlooked is the amount of influence and leverage that parents have on educators and administrators' willingness to change curriculum or enact equity practices. The requests and demands of parents who are involved in the school, especially if they're making financial contributions to the school, are many times favored. And depending on the intentions of these parents, these may perpetuate inequities. This was certainly something that happened at my high school and oftentimes in conversations with teachers who truly did want to incorporate you know equity practices or anti-racist work in their classrooms were fearful of doing so because of pushback that they would oftentimes get from white conservative affluent parents and I think that speaks volumes, and some of those conversations that I would have with those teachers were incredibly disappointing to me because it's like, like, what does that mean um, if mm-hmm. you're not willing to, like, what does that say about you know your job or you know the education system or the school if teachers aren't willing to stand up on behalf of their students of color um, or students just in general out of fear for, you know, their parents or the parents, like who has the power here? Did you experience anything like this, Brian?
0: No, I'm, my, I'm, my school wasn't predominantly white, but there was a school, that my, our neighbor slash rival school, that was predominantly white and also much, much wealthier than my school. And I don't know about the instances of this, but I do know of an instance where they were like actually very racist. Uh, which is their musical theater program was so white and yet they did a show like Hairspray or did they did the show like Rent which is about people of color and about racism and no one in the cast was black and it was like how do you even like how do you as parents fund this and they fund they gave like so much money like our budget for theater shows was maybe like a few grand maybe tens of grands, if it's like a big 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 show um, but they raised like a hundred grand or something crazy so yeah I feel like parents can also just like be harmful to by like pushing certain things especially in the arts or in sports
1: yeah I mean yeah I I don't have anecdotes from anything like arts or theater related because I wasn't involved but certainly certainly in sports and in the education system in general I mean that's like an in- that's an insane story but also at the same time unfortunately like not super surprising um and I just think that like yeah parents influences on schools we talked about this before and and not necessarily like a critical way but just how much a parent influences a child's education in general but then like also the other side of the coin is like they're they're forced that they have on schools on administrators especially if these parents have money Um, It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to go into. It doesn't. It doesn't have to do with the kids, believe it or not. Like I know that's a radical statement, but like, I mean, it's not. I just feel like (laughs) parents are always like heavily involved and uh, in like the political sphere of education.
0: Yeah. So I I think just like, I mean, overall, we have to challenge the belief that the way to address inequities lie in non-action oriented tasks that don't create sustainable change especially when these tasks lack accountability and don't produce results. There needs to be tangible clarity on what is to be accomplished, Whether, uh, which is often not the case in conducting audits and reports or holding equity training. Even if these things provide some perspective, they're often not enough. A thing that comes up to my mind is like, um, a lot of school districts are taking a one-to-one approach and giving students like a Chromebook or a laptop not thinking about whether the student has access to internet or uh, their own room or other hardware stuff
1: right that's where it's like what we're talking about about how like systematic approaches and individual approaches kind of need to be meshed together you Mm -hmm. can't really have like one without the other you have to be looking big picture and small scope at the same time Um, but student success is dependent upon these robust changes within the system um, but oftentimes they're left waiting for the next equity ever, effort. And I think as a student, like as a young kid, especially as a very young kid, you're not necessarily waiting for an equity effort. You probably don't even know what that means. Yeah. But I mean, realistically, they're waiting for these changes to happen in order for their education to improve. But a lot of times teachers, administrators, and parents who are don't have children that are necessarily affected by These things are comforted by what appears to be good intentions in terms of equity training. Not saying that that's necessarily bad, but it is a a lot of times. Like if there's no results that come for that, like then what is it really doing? Um, So I think just like at the end of the day, like educational equity is taking action. It can't just be talk. It can't just be trainings. Um, So like eliminating policies, creating policies and systems and practices that promote this is what needs to happen and then also I think a constant evaluation of is this working is this not working like I just think like there should be no settling and also I think this is true for so many things is like there's not really an end to this process Mm -hmm. there's not going to be a finish line like this is a never-ending unfolding thing that's we need to be engaged with for the rest of our lives if you are if you have children, if you're in school, or if you're just deeply passionate about education.
0: Right. And as like, as students, as adults, as college students, college grads, I think one thing that you can definitely do is be involved more with your um, education board, uh, advocate for policies that ensure more funding to schools or review like textbooks, like we talked about in the last episode. Um, And there's just a lot of things you can do action-wise if you're not a part of high schools or public schools right now that i think are just as equally important as the actions you take within the education system
1: yeah and i think like teachers i think a lot of times not always this isn't true always but teachers like i think oftentimes like to learn from their students or do inevitably learn from their students um and just like in general I think if you're in education, like learning is a big part. So having conversations with teachers about all this stuff, even if you're a college graduate, but also if you're in school as well, could be beneficial. Just like getting their take or trying to trying to have an open conversation or dialogue about this, because I think teachers are obviously impacted by equity practices, but they're also a lot of times responsible for them as well. So having conversations or a dialogue with teachers and administrators, I think, is another you know, small scale grassroots thing that you can do to just get the conversation going. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And if you're a student of color and you have really cool parents, like get them on the PTA. I think that's a huge mm-hmm. way that one of my friends and her mom made like a huge effort um, throughout my high school experience was just like her mom was on the PTA.
1: Yeah, the PTA. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm really excited for the book segment because I know the author, but I haven't read any of his books, but I've seen a lot of his interviews, so I'm excited for this.
1: I'm also excited for this because for this episode's book segment, I selfishly chose to do my favorite book, which is a very bold statement, but I'm going to make it. Um, The book is called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, and it's by Ocean Vuong. Ocean Vuong is a poet and author. He was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and he grew up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, which is where the book primarily takes place. Before On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, he wrote a critically acclaimed poetry collection, Night Sky and Exit Wounds, which won the Whitening Award and the T.S. Eliot Prize. On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous is, I guess like I would describe it as a poetic memoir because it's definitely a memoir but it's nothing like I've ever read before and I love memoirs I read them all the time but this one it was like every single line was so carefully crafted just like if you're reading poetry um Wong writes the book in a form of a letter to his mother who cannot read um there's just a lot of it's a lot of talk but a dialogue with his mother, who is not necessarily responding, but you get this just emotional feeling between him and his mom. Um, it's an exploration of Wong's family history, his relationship to his mother, and an exploration of race, class, and masculinity in the United States. The book covers topics like addiction, violence, and trauma, all alongside others like compassion family, and first enduring love. If I could describe the book in a few words, I would call it immersive and vivid. When I think back to the book, I don't necessarily think of, like, the whole full story plot, but I think more of, like, specific scenes and passages that stick in my mind to the point where, like, I feel like I'm, like, there, or, like, watching it. Like, I feel like I'm watching it. And I don't want to give, like, too much away because I really hope so many people read it um, but I will just say like if this book showed up in classrooms uh, public school or college which kind of feels like a pipe dream because there is a lot of explicit and violent imagery in it but it would really be like so incredible because it offers so much insight about history both outside of the U.S. and inside the U.S. and how history affects generations today and their lived experiences now it also offers so much insight in how we view care and love one another Um, but even if it's not in classrooms you can still read it yourself and add it to the library in your brain I definitely advocate for reading this book on earth we're briefly gorgeous by Ocean Wong
0: yeah I only know the author and I've seen how he talks so beautifully and poetically about the immigrant experience so i'm gonna read this book soon read
1: um, it brian that'll be so fun i can't <laughs> to talk about it
0: <laughs> Okay, cool well thanks for joining us for the third episode of our uh, podcast series season um and i hope that you learned a little bit about equity and education and uh, that we didn't swamp your brains too much but until next time bye
1: Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Diversify Our Narrative, or you can go to diversifyournarrative.com where you can find resources, educational content, and more. Special thanks to Feel the Ambiances for our music, and don't forget to rate five stars on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify.